folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of the Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at The Farm Podcast, all one word, thefarmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for The Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Okay, I have got a repeater for this outing and a heavyweight one at that. He is Doc Inferno, host of Doom Mintamore podcast, which discusses crime, parapolitics, apocalyptism, and extremism, some of our favorite subjects here. Thank you so much for joining us again, Doc. Always a pleasure to be here, Stephen. All right, so this may be the lightest show Doc Inferno and I have yet recorded. That's not to say this isn't going to be another gruesome outing. Our topic is related to Jalo, which has a largely deserved reputation as one of the most brutal genres out there. Originating in Italy during the 1960s, it has had a vast and far-reaching influence on cinema. The American slasher genre is largely a result of it, along with Hitchcock's Psycho. Jalo, like most horror genres, is dominated by directors. And at the pinnacle of this style is none other than Dario Argento, possibly the most celebrated horror author as at an international level to walk the earth. His work is groundbreaking and his influence has touched everyone from Brian Del Palma to David Lynch to George A. Romero. We're going to explore some of Argento's most celebrated films with a special emphasis on the occulted Three Mothers trilogy. And we're going to give you guys a crash course in Jalo to boot. So on that note, let us start the show. Let's set the stage for what we know is Jalo. What were some of the early influences on this uh, genre, Doc? Okay. As you know, Stephen, uh, Recluse, some of the stuff that you will read in like conventional histories of Jalo is that it started from the 1920s. It was named for the Yellow Pulp uh, novels uh, that were largely being imported into Italy. And thus, it was mainly around, you know, the noir type detective, let's just say genre, you know, the typical tropes of the noir series is that the villain is kind of uh, has a disability 
he might even be like not your typical sort of uh, masculine definitions. He might be kind of a feat, a damsel in distress. And a, of course, a sleuth and a gumshoe goes and uh, saves the day. Now, Italy didn't have a history. I would, and please, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but from what I've researched and I've looked into Italy's history uh, quite uh, profusely. And it didn't really have a tradition, traditional kind of um, horror genre films, because during the 1920s and into like fascist Italy, the horror movies were banned because Mussolini thought they were salacious. Uh, He thought they were gruesome. He thought, you know, they really went against, let's just say, his values. So what happened was, is that Italians decided to tap into the books they read in the 1920s and they developed kind of a unique sort of genre that did have American influence but was uniquely sort of Italian as opposed to and I do emphasize that Giallo in Italy itself is uniquely Italian phenomena that's why you don't see a lot of it uh, in America and why American slasher films are kind of vastly different from Italian films first of all the protagonist and the main person in most giallo films you know you'll notice like in in sort of like american let's just say anglo-american slasher films typically most of the killers are males uh most of most of also the victims are kind of a mixed lot but in italy what's peculiar about it is they don't quite have the pathos that uh let's just say like a killer a killer in like uh you know a killer it doesn't it also doesn't play around with sort of let's just say the gender dynamics like like a lot of it, italian giallo films uh so the primary difference is like also the star of the film in American in American slasher films are primarily the boogeymen that are employed, you know, the pinheads, the Freddy Kruegers, the Jason Voorhees. In Italian Italian uh, giallo films, it's mainly an you know, an invisible type of, you know, prot- protagonist killer and it's it's uh, the full view of the killer is not really shown uh until later in the film. Now I believe one of the earliest influences for Giallo, even though there is not really, I would say, an indigenous sort of uh, horror scene in Italy itself, was uh, German expressionist films, like people like Fritz Lang, like M. There was also a movie called Peeping Tom. Uh, You know, in a lot of these films, and, and also, of course, there was uh Michelangelo and Antoli Antolia he uh he did a movie called Blow Up that was very influential on the scene so a lot of this like congealed together with like Hitchcock and produced something that was uniquely Italian and I want to say also one of the other reasons that I believe giallo is different than American slashers is because Italian culture is very local Italian culture is really defined and Italians have had this sort of resilience over the years to protect their culture, not only from, I would say the fascist regime, 
in, you know, in Italy itself, but also from Americanism. They really didn't, like, even though they did absorb a lot of American noir influence from the 1920 sort of yellow pulp novels, thus the name, they wanted to formulate something that's Itali that's uniquely Italian. And it, it also seems like the extreme right and the extreme left in Italy, they both follow course and they don't really, they're not really up for many foreign influence. And they wanted to, you know, develop something that was artistically Italian. So uh, that's why I kind of believe the Giallo form is kind of uniquely Italian. And you know, that's the reason why the differences you sort of see between American slasher and Giallo films itself. One thing that I would definitely emphasize that differentiates uh, American slashers from Giallo is the, I actually think is a big part, is the noir element that came from the American pulps and Edgar Allan Poe and so forth. Because it seems like it's pretty central to most Giallo films that there is a mystery usually concerning yes. who the killer is. And that's almost always an integral plot, a point of the plot. And like you're saying, that creates uh, the dynamic where the killer is more of this shadowy presence that is speculated upon throughout the film, which is in stark contrast to an American slasher. Like you're saying, I mean, the, the killer is basically the protagonist in any good American slasher movie. I mean, you're going to see A Nightmare on Elm Street for Freddy Krueger, the Friday the 13th movies for Jason, the Halloween films for Michael Myers, etc., etc. You're not going to it for the victims. I mean, they're interchangeable. They're obviously quite disposable. Um, now, some American slasher movies do have a mystery at their core as terms of the killer. I mean, obviously the April fool's day, I would say. Yeah. Heard of that one. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen April fool's day. Um, the first Friday, the 13th movie to some extent, and actually also the, the fifth Friday, the 13th movie as well, since it's not actually Jason. Who's the killer in that it's somebody who's imitating Jason, a little bit of a twist there, but yeah, it's typically though. These are exceptions to the rule. They're more novelties uh, in the field. I mean, I think there might've been a few other more obscure ones, like maybe prom night had something. Like yes. Prom night. I was, yeah. I was actually going to mention that, that when I say, you know, and this is like heavily emphasized from what I've researched about Giallo films and my familiarity with them is that, a lot of the killers in like American slashers to typically they tend to be male. They tend to be, um, they, they tend to be like, you know, kind of, I would say people that might have a deformity that might have some peculiarities about their psychology. Uh, but they're typically not females. I would say they're typically not females with the exception of, uh, I think, you know, like I said, the original Friday, the 13th prom night. Uh, I think even like some of the screen movies may have flirted with that concept, but you know, in Italian films, that's kind of what makes Giallo unique is it it's not just males, but it's like, it can be someone that is sort of uh, ambiguous that is like involved with uh, the murder plot. So I, I think that that comes kind of to, Italy's sort of culture is completely different when it deals with sort of these dynamics is completely different than America. Um, I don't want to say, I don't want to stereotype or typecast, you know, Italian like culture, but I will say it is a little bit, they have a little bit more machismo 
uh, than I would say a lot of American culture and more localized. And I would even say in some areas, a lot more traditional. Now make what you will of that, but that's what I've gleaned from researching uh, Italy. That, that's not to say, you know, Italians are sexist per se. It's just, I just think that's part of the local flavor. Uh, one other aspect with American films I wanted to mention, because you had brought that up with Scream. I actually, and now that I've seen more Jalo films, I actually can't help but feel that uh, Kevin Williamson, at least originally, did intend the Scream franchise as sort of an Americanized version of Jalo, because really that's the one significant slasher franchise where the mystery of the killer's identity is kind of crucial to the whole. Uh, you know each film it's not just like maybe we pulled out for like the first movie or something but each one it's always sort of a question of who the killer is going to be and I mean obviously Ghostface does have sort of the mask and everything but he doesn't really at least as far as I know I haven't seen past the third one but I mean he never really talked it was always more of a ambiguous presence unlike some of the more conventional I mean obviously Michael Myers or Jason didn't really talk either but um they did have, I would say, maybe more uh, characteristics to them, idiosyncrasies, than what they gave to the ghost face killer, at least initially. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of an interesting dynamic with that film to consider, or that franchise rather to consider. Um, in terms of Italian culture, too, I think you're right. And I also can't help but feel that uh, surrealism and even Dadaism was probably an influence. It does seem... Oh, yeah. With a lot of uh, the Jalo films, and definitely on Argento, that's yeah, for I was sure. Say with Argento, I mean, you do kind of get the sense that it's more about the feeling that he's trying to generate in the audience rather than trying to string together a coherent narrative. Again, a lot of Jalo directors, and especially Argento, are usually derided for style over substance, but that's you know kind of missing the point it's about creating an atmosphere for the audience rather than trying to tell them a coherent narrative in a lot of cases even though the murder a mystery angle is essential in a lot of the films it's still uh, i think for some of the better directors not crucial to the overall atmosphere that they're trying to construct with the films i, d I don't want to jump ahead but i want to reiterate what you said about scream actually there's a scene in the movie tenebrae where uh someone stumbles upon Bertie, and by the way, this there's going to be spoilers in this. So, like, if you haven't seen, I apologize, but it's crucial to kind of the show that I reveal something like uh, the plots of some of Argento's films. When Tenebrae, there's a scene in there where Bertie is being stalked by this particular guy, and he stumbles upon his house, and within that house, uh, Bertie is killing someone right in front of him. So you see the reflection of the killer on the the glass. Okay. You see the reflection of the killer on the glass. This mirrors kind of the opening sequence of scream. And I believe Kevin Williamson completely took this from Tenebrae, uh, where you see the effects of like the killer and on the glass and uh, sort of like the person is sort of boxed in and uh, you know, being chased like that. And then they get killed with like an ax and then the ax or knife gets thrown through the shattering glass. So I believe that that was directly lifted from the movie Tenebrae. Certainly. I, I think. Are, are you familiar with that scene, Stephen? 
yeah vaguely i know what you're talking about um i mean i just saw tenebrae it's actually been a while since i've seen the opening of screen but i kind of remember what you're saying so yeah i could see the connection with that i know like i said when i was re-watching a lot of the uh the giallo films lately i was just kind of blown away by how much they parallel the general structure of a lot of the screen movies so I certainly would take your word for it that there's been a lot of lifts in the screen franchise from various Jalo films by Williamson. And by the way, I didn't want to sound like cold and clinical when I describe sort of the origins of Jalo films. So I just, I just think it's not widely acknowledged that Jalo, even though I do agree with you, there are like traits taken for Edgar Allan Poe, Hitchcock, and you know uh, Antolini as well, who was like an Italian filmmaker who sort of like adds that suspense plot uh, uh, sort of conspiratorial angle to a lot of the early giallo films. I think it is kind of uniquely uh, a coalescent of Italian culture and, and also with uh, many of these different sort of auteurs and, and artists uh, uh, sort of intermingled, creating something uniquely sort of Italian. And it, it just shows you how an American import, uh, you know, such as horror films, even though they were suppressed, they somehow found a way into the consciousness of, you know, a, Italian uh, cinema. And, you know, Argento even says himself that Giallo and a lot of his films are a distillation of sort of the, the superstition and the traditions that exist when in Italy itself, which is why I'm going to be quite honest. I don't think Americans, with the exceptions of a few, can make a quality uh, giallo film they just don't have sort of the uh the the sort of cultural background to do so i mean it's uh it's a it's a different sort of culture as opposed to italy but i'll move on from there i just want to emphasize sort of the uniquely italian stamp well i have to say though i do think that the influence of hitchcock on the genre cannot be uh under oh no that's another point I oh yeah have, especially in especially frenzy yeah, well, I mean, I, I think in terms of also the the use of color, I mean, when you look at some of the stuff Argento's doing, I mean, he's obviously a huge fan of Vertigo, like, I mean, pretty oh, much yeah. director worth his salt is, but uh, Vertigo was undoubtedly an enormous influence along with some of the usual suspects like Psycho, but also um, films like Marnie and also Strangers on the Train. If I remember correctly, the primarily way, even though you know who the killer is from pretty much the opening part, the primary way that he dispatches his victims is by strangling them and uh, typically using gloved hands as well. It's interesting you brought mm -hmm. up that scene too with the uh, reflection because there's actually a similar thing in Strangers on the Train where the killer's reflection is seen in a uh, cigarette lighter, uh, which uh, definitely I think is something that Argento and a lot of the... Oh yeah, Argento is really into mirrors and mirroring sort of like the killer. And so it's it's a plot device that he, he puts early in the film and sometimes even used as a misdirect. Uh, I want to say, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just want to say also the misdirect is something sort of uniquely uh, giallo too. Um, it's not a standard conventional sort of uh, detective plot where it goes, you know, typical cat and mouse, although there is like cat and mouse elements. Typically what there is, is there's a witness, there's someone outside, like a journalist or some, like an outsider that doesn't rely upon the police, that doesn't rely upon conventional like you know, investigative techniques. And though all throughout the movie, they're giving you like clues and puzzles 
that are unlocked through various different uh, physical items. It could be a piece of art. It could be um, kind of a set piece. It could be, you know, uh, a lullaby. It could be various different sort of eccentric things that eventually reveal to the killer. And yes, mirrors and all these sort of things are utilized to reveal who the end killer is. Uh, but one final point I wanted to make about Hitchcock, too, before we move on, is also his uh, conception of killers. I know you uh, wanted to get into how Jalo oh, yeah. predated the modern conception of the serial killer, but I think that's also something that must be emphasized about Hitchcock's movies as well. I mean, once again, a, movie, a film like Strangers on a Train, I think, is a fantastic film chronicling a serial killer. I mean, almost. You, you mind if I give you some insight on Strangers on a Train? Oh, go for it. Okay. Are you familiar with Patricia Highsmith? The mystery writer, right? Yes. Yes. Are Are you familiar with like her character of Ripley? Yes. Yes. And I know the talented Mr. Ripley. Well, it's, I mean, if you look at Patricia Highsmith's life, uh, not only did she kind of live a double life in terms of her sexuality, but it seems also like, you know, because she's, I think she was kind of hinted on that. It's also hinted that she may have been uh, somewhat of a killer uh, through a lot of her, you know, novels. So what we see here is probably sublimination to where she was subconsciously, let's just say, projecting some of maybe her insight into how killers think and how killers sort of navigate the world. Um, so I'm of the belief that Patricia Highsmith was probably had more insight into, and this is just my mere speculation. I'm not saying that this is definite. So don't sue me, uh, estate, Patricia Highsmith's estate or whatever, leave us alone. But in terms of like her, uh, you know, her, her subconscious, I think she embodied a lot of, uh, let's just say the telltale signs of someone that would uh, probably be a serial killer or a killer uh, right in within her novels, it's concealed and uh, a sophisticated killer. I will say that uh, because the talented Mr. Ripley is, and even strangers on a train are, and in my opinion, um, I think they are a lot like uh, more like Giallo than I would say noir or uh, crime writing for its time. Uh, you know, but yes, I think Patricia Highsmith herself may have been harboring kind of a dark secret. Well, I mean, you could actually kind of say the same thing about Hitchcock as well. Oh, yeah, Hitchcock as well. But I, I think Patricia Highsmith probably was uh, had more nerve to actually probably put it into action as opposed to Hitchcock. But who knows? Who knows people's background? But one thing is for sure, they have a keen eye for a killer and, and sort of the traits that killers exhibit before I would say even FBI profilers were able to compile such traits. So. Yeah, I mean, just well, I mean, I was thinking too of the rope, which uh, that was based on a real case. I know what was it, the Leopold and oh, yeah, Leopold and Lope. Yes, the rope. Yes, I mean, that was kind of another just interesting profile of a killer, and then certainly also the um, god, the Jimmy Stewart character in Vertigo. I mean, that's a straight up sort of depiction of the uh, looming killers that we think of as oh, like yeah. and so forth. So yeah, it's interesting to see what just some of these people were doing with fiction. Uh, 
you know, in the early 20s. I mean, obviously, you could throw in the expressionist films, as you had mentioned before, like M. That would be another one. Oh, yeah, M. Fritz Lang, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a body of evidence that a lot of creative types were at least aware of the concept of the serial killer before officially such a notion was acknowledged by the glorious savants at the FBI. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they want the credit for that, I'm sure. Well, can you talk a bit about Mario Bava, <laughs> who's usually seen as the originator of Jalo? Okay, Mario Bava is an interesting case. Um, and most stuff that I've read about Bava, they they tend to like gloss over the fact that he did have like some supernatural and I would say uh, metaphysical underpinnings to a lot of his films. Um, but what made Bava, and by the way, Bava, I think I think Argento was probably Bava's understudy, and a lot of like stuff that Argento later employed in his own Giallo films were first sort of uh, witnessed with Bava. So Bava had the conventional uh, Giallo films, you know, black glove, masked, uh, rain trench coat, wearing kind of protagonist, outsider, detective. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, usually doesn't employ the police. Also, the misdirect from the witness. Uh, also, like what what Argento took from Bava, and I think a lot of other filmmakers did, is that the brutality of his camera. I would say the brutality of like his his uh, sort of camera angles. He was kind of the first. I would say to really close up, go into the perspective of the killer and go into the victim. And he would alternate between uh, the killer point of view and also the victim point of view. And those were sort of the benchmarks of his films. Now, when I say supernatural element, I don't, it didn't quite have sort of the occultic flair that uh, Argento would incorporate in like his, uh, you know, non-Giallo films, but he did explore such stuff as, uh, you know, Satanism and some of the other sort of metaphysical elements. They they pop up in a lot of his films, like Lisa and the Devil, which is a not a well-known Bava film. Everyone knows um, uh, Bay of Blood. Uh, so those are kind of things that are characteristics to uh, Bava's films that I think later were employed by Argento, primarily his camera angles, his point of view from the killer uh, sort of the also voyeuristic kind of camera, you know, angle that you would see later employed by Argento and other um, Giallo film makers. Uh, also Bava was like working with limitations. Um, the problem with the, like a lot of early Giallo films is they were really contingent on, you know, raising money and getting money from like uh, various different sources and exported to uh, foreign markets. They didn't have like a lot of creativity. Argento was kind of different in that way. Uh, he had the total creativity. So like I said, the camera angles, the murders point of view, and the victim's point of view and the really, really close, gruesome kind of kills that you see later in Argento's films uh, and sort of also the misdirects. Um, this now, of course, this doesn't mean that, you know, 
Argento got everything from Bava. It just means that Bava was uh, kind of one of the first to employ these sort of techniques. Um, uh, what's, what's your opinion about Bava, uh, Stephen? I'm not super familiar with Bava, actually. I think I've only really seen, like, what is it, Blood and Black Lace or something like that, and maybe, like, one other film. But I don't feel like I'm familiar enough with his overture to have much of an opinion on it. Well, supposedly, uh, Bay of Blood is based, Halloween and Friday the 13th are kind of based on those films. Um, I think Scorsese says that Blood and Black Lace are very were very influential to a lot of his uh sort of early um films as you know scorsese also was like an understudy i think of corman it's where he made his rise so uh sort of the relationship that scorsese and corman had was i would liken that to argento and uh you know bava so a lot of like argento's techniques are definitely learned from from Bava, but you know, as as we will talk later on, Argento expands uh sort of on these, but definitely the the benchmarks are there for all like his later films like Tenebrae, Deep Red. They're all there in Bava. And Bava, by the way, like I said, was not just a Giallo filmmaker. He also like explored some of the supernatural aspect, highly, although unpolished and not really the occultic themes of of uh, Argento himself, but he definitely led a lot to Argento's early works. Are there uh, any other common jobs <laughs> that you wanted to touch upon that we haven't mentioned already? Um, I think we covered most of them. I, I think sort of also one of the ones that I'm not sure if Argento developed this himself, uh, but was the use, I would say the use of like animals, and uh, everything from like, uh, you know, basic barnyard animals to cats, dogs and various other animals are employed to as part of the device of uh, birds as well as part of the device to uh, lead us to the lead up to the reveal of the killer. Uh, but I think we and also I wanted to emphasize also, I didn't say this previously, but usually the person that is like the main star of in terms of detective and giallo films, they're always like outsiders in, in terms they're they're sometimes even foreign, uh, non-Italian people even that come and, and solve these these crimes. And uh the first witness, of course, as I've mentioned, are are sort of uh, that's put in there and employed as a misdirect. So I think we covered most of the stuff about giallo tropes. Uh I'm I think that's pretty, and plus the the point of view from the killer and uh, the victim, the the sort of close up, I would say brutality of Giallo is highly defined and and uh, a Giallo kind of a Giallo trope, not widely. And to be quite honest with you, a lot of the early Giallos are kind of tame, even to. Uh, Argento's later works, they're, they're sort of tame, in my opinion. Even Bava's stuff, even though it does employ kind of uh, killings, they're kind of tame compared to what we see in Argento's later works. So I think that pretty much wraps up the whole giallo tropes. Are, are there like any you think I missed, Stephen? 
Uh, no, I think we got them all. I mean, obviously, also the black gloves thing, but repeated in a lot of them. But yeah, I think we've uh, got the uh, most of the really significant ones. Well, let's start getting into Argento then. What is his origin story? A uh, very interesting story. I think Argento, he was, he's of Sicilian descent, but he was born in Rome to a very prominent movie producer. So early on, it seems like, unlike other Giallo film directors, maybe he had like a direct connection into, uh, let's just say, the, the world of cinema. And um, early on, he developed this love when he started like working as a film critic for a local Roman uh, newspaper in Rome. And through all his, uh, you know, movie criticism he started to develop a kind of like um desire to make movies to strike out and make movies on his own and what was popular at the time that he was a movie critic at local newspapers it was primarily spaghetti westerns there were like uh, italian comedies uh and exploitation films and a lot of these films were uh, you know, were filmed in Italy because of the cost. That's why they're kind of called spaghetti westerns. The cost was the overhead cost of a lot of the filming locations was a lot lower than a lot of American locations and other uh, locations. So what happened is a lot of people decided to export kind of sort of the western to Italy. That's why you see so many westerns that were produced like in the late 60s to the early 70s. Same thing goes with exploitation films. Um I don't know if there's like was any black exploitation films that were filmed in Italy, uh, but I think there were plenty of like exploitation and low budget films that were filmed in Italy. And Argento kind of cut his teeth on working with people like Sergi Leone, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, and also like other let's just say exploitative uh, director. I don't see exploitation directors. Uh, so. Also, what's interesting about Argento, this would serve him very well because unlike I mentioned previously, unlike other Giallo directors, they were always subject to foreign influence. Uh, they always had to get, you know, they always had to like appeal to the market, not Argento. This allowed him to be a little bit more explore, explorative, exploratory um, than other film directors. He uh, could explore like broader themes, uh, different topics, uh, because he could finance it himself, and he had create total creative control of his films, opposed to other Giallo filmmakers. Um, and of course, it didn't help. I mean, it, sorry, it didn't hurt that he was also the understudy of like Mario Bava, and like, and also like the son of like a film producer. Uh, but still, like he produced a lot of early films that probably are lost to time, or they're in a vault somewhere. They're mostly non-Giallo films. They're they're not really Giallo films, so um, they're they're largely comedies. <clears throat> which Argento tried to actually break out of the uh, Giallo, uh, you know, genre, uh, but it turns out like no one really wanted to watch any of his comedies or his early films, so. That's kind of his origin story. Um, I think it's also kind of interesting that a, a a man from the South in Italy, and for people just to li just to add some cultural context 
people probably don't understand, but the the South question in Italy, I'm just going to interject this. This doesn't really have much to do with uh, Giallo, but it does kind of shape and highlights, give you some insight into Argento himself, is that he was a man, you know, his family was like from the South, from Sicily. And there's quite a cultural distinction between someone in the industrial North and the South, um, not just like I would say ethnicity wise, like a lot of people assume uh, in Italy, but just cultural differences. There's a lot more, a lot difference between, uh, you know, Southerners and Northerners, kind of like, you know, in America, kind of like also like in other countries like Egypt, there's differences geographically there. So I don't know if this had any influence on Argento's films. I, It's hard to say, uh, but definitely... Uh, I would say that probably played an impact in, in some of his family. And that's just like speculation on my part. But if people are looking into Argento's background, I mean, it's kind of unimportant that he was like Sicilian, but in, in, um, in like, uh, you know, uh, in, in sort of like his own temperament, I would say that could have highlighted a lot of like his uh, attraction, maybe to like these Giallo films and, his later development and why he's sort of like the, the outsider in a lot of his films. But that's as far as what I know about Argento. I mean, I don't, there's not a lot written about Argento. There is like a pretty good uh, autobiography that he did, which I haven't had a chance really to explore or look into where he gives a lot of his insight into his films, but outside of like his filmmaking, I can't really tell you a whole lot about him. There's not a lot of information out there about him other than he was the son of a prominent sort of Italian movie producer. And uh, he really, you know, sort of dipped his toes in exploitation films and uh, early uh, spaghetti Westerns. And he co-wrote a lot of films with Sergi Leone. And, uh, you know, probably, that's probably where he made a lot of his connections uh, including like that would help him later out in his like beginnings in Giallo. You know much about Argento's or origin, Stephen? No, not too much. The background, um, obviously, he <laughs> I, I think about the mid to late seventies was also working pretty regularly with George Romero. Um, yeah, of course, the story director of Night of the Living Dead, the original one. Argento uh, was one of the producers behind uh, Dawn of the Dead, the original one, the sequel to uh, that Romero did to his uh, Night of the Living Dead. And uh, he also produced Martin, uh, which might actually be uh, my favorite. Argento did that? Yeah, yeah, he produced it. Yeah, Interesting. Which might actually be my favorite George Romero movie. Uh, so he uh, kind of broke in a little bit producing some American films for Romero, which I always thought was interesting. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we can't forget the Goblins, too, who he really launched. Oh, yeah. Of course, they became so instrumental uh, in the scoring a lot of his films. And, you know, that's kind of another uh, aspect, too, of the, I think, unique uh, flair that the Italians give to some of these Jern movies. I mean, obviously, there's, uh, was it Marconi? Uh, yeah, Marconi, yes. Yeah, yeah. And who did all the spaghetti Western scores. Of course, he's really famous. For and he did some of Argento's early works, too. Yeah. Before he was introduced to Goblin. And then Goblin. So that's kind of another thing is how they took, uh, they sort of incorporated contemporary music into these uh, 
peculiar scores for their films and some rather unorthodox choices, I would say, at a few points. But it, it definitely worked and was very unique and a very defining characteristic of Italian cinema of this era. But I will say one thing that uh, Argento did that was kind of unique for Giallo films is he chose to no, not really like his earlier works, let's just say Birds uh, with the Crystal Plumage, uh, but some of his later works, starting with Deep Red, you know, you mentioned Goblin. He employed a lot of like uh, of, you know, their music and um, and sort of bypassed like sort of the conventional notion that you just needed kind of a standard uh, let's just say chorus or orchestra type score, you could actually employ like, um, you know, rock music or heavy metal music into uh, a horror soundtrack, you know, as, as opposed to just having kind of choral music or uh, I, I don't know if anybody in Giallo was actually employing this. Uh, and he gets criticized a lot from people because of this, because they say that it, his music just doesn't match a lot of the, uh, atmosphere itself but somehow argento doesn't manage to make uh you know heavy metal and rock music you know match sort of the brutality and a lot of the uh the horror and terror that is on screen i don't know how he does it but he he does do that
And excuse me, Argento didn't produce Martin. He helped out uh, on some of the editing for the European, okay. some of the music. But yes, he did have some involvement in it. I knew he had at least a little bit of a contribution. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people think that he was uh, very instrumental in like, um, uh, you know, Dawn of the Dead. But yeah, I think he only helped with the production and that it may be a little bit of the writing. I'm not sure. I'm not certain like he... Uh, a lot of people think he co-wrote it. I don't think so. I don't think he co-wrote that film along with Ramiro. But nevertheless, the relationship between Ramiro and uh, Argento is is an interesting one. Not not always a good one in terms of like what they materialize or what they develop. Uh, but it's a it's an interesting one. No doubt. Well, do you want to speak a little bit to uh, Argento's use of color, set design, and representation of space in his films? Okay. I've sort of like um, talked about this and uh, scattered throughout the rest of like um, the show. Uh, but what I will say is that one of the things that kind of define Argento, it's not his character development. It's not his uh, story development, but a lot of it is basically the color set design and sort of the represent representation space. And he utilizes these factors and he may take everything from, let's just say, a sort of panorama, a panoramic view of an opera house. Uh, surrounded by sort of set pieces like ravens. Uh, he might also take like a Rome plaza, an abandoned like suburb in sort of Rome itself that I think Benito Mussolini commissioned for like the movie Tenebrae. And of course, there's the scene where the, let's just say the the couple, the lesbian couple in Tenebrae end up getting killed and impaled. And there's a famous scene, of course, where she's lifting up her shirt, where this is shot in like one uh, sort of one, one take. And this scans sort of the building, the apartment building from the bottom to the top, to the windows area to where both of the victims are there. And of course I mentioned earlier, the house of Bertie, uh, which is the initial killer in Tenebrae. Uh, the scene in there that builds up the tension with the reflection of the glass and, and also sort of the way that the, let's just say the shot and the neighborhood itself is shown. It makes you feel like there's a sense of dread or paranoia in the air. It makes you say, feel like someone is stalking and looming. And he uses sort of this, architecture this brutalist architecture which argento himself said that tenebrae and the plaza that represents tenebrae even though it's filmed in rome it's not supposed to be rome itself it's supposed to be uh representative of kind of in a different era of where rome has been depopulated and there's been a, like a cataclysmic event uh within this space but the architecture itself the, the whole expressionist, brutalist architecture it has almost like a life quality in itself. And it's supposed to uh, feel like you're being constrained uh, by the stalker, by the killer. And there's this, this looming presence of terror. And he does this 
over and over again. It could be also like art pieces such as the fall of Icarus and the Stenhall syndrome. It could be also the statue of the statue that is in deep red of Poe. And it could be like the entire, like, you know, Turin sort of cityscape uh, to where like um, Marty and like his friend are talking in, in deep red and, you know, Argento strategically sort of picks where he films a lot of his locations and he makes sure he makes sure to emphasize, um, you know, particular sort of historical landmarks and and highlights kind of the history that's behind that, because that particular scene in there from Deep Red, that's where the Gestapo actually uh, seized a part of Turin. Um, That's also where Helga would, by the way, I'm sorry if I'm again, uh, sort of uh, breaking sort of like spoilers here, but that's where Helga, the clairvoyant in Deep Red is is killed by the, the killer. But where it's most pronounced, I believe, and where he's making a statement about this is the movie Tenebrae, which I can't emphasize enough is probably my favorite Argento film. And it's where like the brutalist architecture of like the modern world just uh, is making you feel claustrophobic. And uh, the same thing goes with like uh, some of his like set pieces that he does for, you know, like the animals, uh, like the ravens, the cats in Inferno, uh, the birds and the crystal plumage, the way that he sets sort of these pieces, even like insects and lizards, uh, they become a ma- major part of the set piece. Like, the whole house that is in Suspiria, it becomes almost like a set piece onto itself. Uh, the the sort of abstract art and mural that's part of uh, the head uh, the headmistress. Uh, you know, it's that that's how sort of like uh, Argento weaves it all together uh, to give us a a presentation and and provoke a kind of emotion in his films to where. Uh, either you're fearing dread, terror, or like claustrophobia, or even, you know, where, you know, in the, in like the, like I said, I mentioned the Bertie's house, like uh, where it's revealed sort of like there's another killer and it's not just Bertie. Bertie gets killed uh, by, you know, by who will be revealed later as uh, Peter North, uh, who, who turns out to be the killer in Tenebrae. Uh, I'm sorry if I ruined people's uh, spoilers here, but, uh, uh, that's kind of part of like the whole entire set piece of Argento's uh, uh, cinematic experience. All right. So what are, uh, are there any other noteworthy locations that he put in his film that you can think of? The other, it was the Wagner house in um, Switzerland. That's a really, really, really picturesque uh, kind of um, place. And you feel kind of the eeriness of that particular location and just kind of evilness and uh, something sinister sort of looms from that location. Uh, but yes, the Wagner house, which in uh, is showcased in the movie phenomena. And of course I mentioned before is Turin. And of course, let's just say the, the various different locations in Rome um, studio Pal- Palio in Rome is another area. Well, 
as far as the Suspiria sort of dance, uh, the ballerina uh, academy, he actually went to Freiburg and he modeled that and then he replicated it in Rome. That's that's what often is done with Argento. He'll do research on specific locations um, and he'll also replicate them in Rome if, if needed. Uh, I don't know why exactly he did that per se, but it seems also that a lot of, you know, Argento's decisions to pick certain locations are a lot of it comes from like personal experience that he's had, like um, the location in Manhattan in like New York came in a lot of the stuff that you see with the apartment. It came from like his interactions, let's just say in Central Park from homeless uh, he set that scene to where uh, the occult bookstore owner is killed by by the uh, by the rats, and he's trying to drown the cats. He he actually took that experience from there. So these the architecture becomes like centerpiece of uh, Argento's experience, wh- whether it's like a gallery or whether it's like you know a monument like in Turin. Uh, but primarily, I would say his his fa- it seems like his favorite locations uh, are primarily in Turin and Rome. I think he especially emphasizes Turin because Turin is kind of known as like uh, the black magic capital. You know, it's uh, it's part of like the black magic triangle, um, which probably, you know, I'm sure Argento is aware of of like his I'm not sure if the, he was aware of it in. When he shot the uh, the statue of Poe and uh, the death of uh, Helga, the clairvoyant, and in Deep Red, but I'm sure that he was probably familiar afterwards, after researching it, all the research he did for Suspiria, and uh, around that time period. One thing that occurs to me uh, in terms of a real life inspiration that might be worth bringing up here uh, with not just Argento's films, but uh, Giallo as a whole would be the Monster of Florence. Oh yeah, the Monster uh, of Florence, absolutely. The, the notorious uh, serial killer who it's believed that he the killings. There's some debate about when the killings started. Uh, it's probably 68, though I think 74 is the date that's more commonly given. But uh, the span of killings stretched from probably the late 60s up to 1985. Uh, which was roughly concurrent with the rise of Jalo, and um, also you had this sort of ongoing whodunit in the press. Uh, to this day, I believe it's yeah. There's never been anybody uh, definitively fingered for the killings uh, that have been attributed to the monster of Florence. So it's kind of another thing that was uh, unfolding against the backdrop of a lot of these films as well. Well, let me mention another uh, killing that's not well known that. There were these two Italian people by the name of uh, Wolfgang Abel and Marco Folon. Uh, they were part of a extremist group called the Ludwig Group. And it was believed these people sort of modeled themselves as like, uh, you know, Nazis and uh, around that time period. And they were going around to various different discos, various diff- different cinemas. Uh, various different areas, all the way from the Netherlands to parts of Padua, uh, parts of Florence and parts of, uh, you know, maybe even like Turin itself. And they were killing homeless people. They were killing uh, Roma people. They were killing various different, uh, 
you know, uh, subjects. And this also seems like contemporary to not only the years of lead, but also to uh, some of the giallo that was taking place. So I've long speculated that Argento knew about a lot of these things in the media because it was quite a sensation at the time. And I'm even willing to go so far as I believe some of the characteristics of Peter North and Tenebrae was probably modeled after Wolfgang Abdel and Marco Furlan, especially some of the uh, tendencies that the killer had to uh, want to sweep away, let's just say, what they perceived as impurities and how they targeted, let's just say, uh, you know, LGBT people in like sort of like at Italy at the time. I'm willing to guess that uh, Argento was probably familiar with this and probably integrated this into his script because in the killings uh you can actually hear where they say uh they say filthy they they call these they call people filthy they say uh wretched and of course the kind of pull away from the movie and the fantasy part of the movie is uh part of it is the main pro- sort of the main that revealed the late the killer peter north uh, is like having these psychosexual fantasies to where he's you know, being stepped on by uh, what could be possibly tra- a transgender actress uh, where he's being stepped on by red high heels. Uh, so it does seem like some of the um, sort of real life events bled into uh, some of the Giallo uh, movies. Uh, what do you think about that, Stephen? Oh, I definitely agree, and uh, I'm glad you brought up the years of lead uh, as well. I definitely think that that is another uh, backdrop to this because it should be emphasized. You know, this was a very violent time in Italian mm-hmm. history. I mean, the years of lead I think would formally began around sixty-seven, sixty-eight, or somewhere thereabouts, and uh, all the way up through the early eighties, at least, uh, there was just a rash of uh, terror attacks and so forth. So, um, you know, this is the climate that these films were coming out in. I mean, I think that it was also a a kind of perfect storm for these kinds of movies to be received. Uh, I mean, certainly you couldn't think, I think, of a better time in uh, contemporary Italian history for something like that to rise up. Now, let me ask you, Stephen, are you familiar with the uh, Ludwig killings? Are you familiar with those? No, I was not. Okay. They're they're kind of mysterious, like... um, they don't the the people maintain their innocence uh although they were involved in uh they are in, they were involved in right wing extremist uh sort of politics they maintain that a lot of the killings were not done themselves so what's interesting about that during the time when they were locked up it seems like these killings were still going on which sort of lended a lot of credence to uh, the validity maybe of their claims, I, I don't know per se, but uh, it, it does it does seem like there's a lot of weird killings like the monster of Florence, the Ludwig killings uh, that seem to have a lot of. And, you know, I would also mention, although I don't want to go on to too far into left field on this on the show, I would say some of the monster of Florence uh, sort of mirrors and reflects some of the, the Zodiac in America. Uh, same thing with the Ludwig killings as well. They they sort of mirror that as well. Uh, so it is kind of interesting. There was like these various different networks of killers that existed in Italy at the time during the years of lead when there was chaos ensuing. Uh, what else is interesting 
is even in Argento's film, and I want to highlight this too, that's that's interesting kind of about his films, is the concept of like the double. Um, in his films, a lot of the people that are the uh, revealed as the killers, they do a misdirect by faking their death. Uh, there's also an incident like in Tenebrae where uh, Bertie is initially the killer, uh, but it turns out that the novelist like uh, Peter North is is later takes up the role of the killer. And it's almost like reality and fiction somewhat becomes clouded and uh, becomes intertwined with one another. So it, it is interesting to note how much of Giallo, true crime, political extremism, where do these things sort of um begin or end in terms of like uh, that uh, real life incidents and events that seem to mirror a lot of giallo plots, such as the Ludwig killings, the monster of Florence and uh, some of the incidents in the years of lead, um, which by the way, was as surreal as any Dario Argento film. Uh, I think when Aldo Mori was kidnapped, uh, they even did a, a seance on the, <laughs> of all things they did a seance on the uh, you know Senate floor in in Italy, uh, trying to find Aldo Moro's uh, kidnappers. And, and well, later when they uh, deployed the Delta Force to help uh, recover that um, all the Italian general that had been kidnapped, uh, they actually brought in the remote viewers uh, from the Army's program from what became Stargate to assist them with. So yeah, I mean there was a lot of like just nutty stuff that was going on throughout that whole time frame in italy um i'm glad you brought up the zodiac killer too by the way because that's been a bit of an ongoing debate in italy as to whether or not there might have been links between florence and uh, the monster of florence and the zodiac killer i know that uh, some of the journalists over there have been investigating that and interesting enough too but it's worth pointing out that concurrently in the United States, we had also entered into a time of a lot of violence and political instability uh, around the late 1960s going on really up till the early 80s that sort of parallels the years of lead in Italy. Maybe not quite as much with the terror attacks, though, again, you had all the stuff with the Civil Liberation Army, the weather underground um, you had the assassinations in 68 of RFK, Malcolm X, MLK. Uh, so that is essentially unfolding again against the backdrop of um, the rise of the American slasher film, essentially. So kind of another interest. And then also, too, obviously, the rash of serial killers. I mean, you can't forget that. But I mean, that was, you know, the 70s was arguably the sort of heyday, quote unquote, for that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, fascinating parallels to that. And then in Italy, at least, there's also been a lot of speculation that the Munster Florence killings were tied into the Gladio networks, which, again, were linked to a lot of the terror attacks in the years of lead. Um, as incredible as that may sound in Belgium, uh, there was also the similar situation there. They call it the bloody 80s, uh, centered around what that attack on that shopping market. Yeah, Brabant killers. Yes, well. yes, a lot of that stuff. But again, there's been a lot of evidence to come out indicating that Mark Dutro, confirmed serial killer, was a part of all of that. So it, again, it's not entirely without precedent potentially here but before we move on i want to say this also about giallo films i think that's interesting and i i don't want to sound too much like 
like a schizoid or whatever when I say these things, but it, it does appear that, you know, Argento and does actually foreshadow some of these sort of serial killer uh, networks that could exist as a possibility. I'm kind of up in the air about, but it does seem like our Argento does mirror some of those factors. In addition to that, I would even argue, and uh, maybe I'm going out on a limb here, is that Argento films also kind of showcase that, you know, the kind of like Stasi level stalking that occurred in like East Germany. Uh, this may have been like kind of like the roadmap for for some of it. So, I mean, there have been stranger things where uh, sort of fiction mirrors reality. That's why I say also, I, I think we should give Argento credit for distorting reality as well from Tenebrae, because Tenebrae is about an author, uh, Peter North, who uh, is able, who, who all of a sudden he goes to Rome. Uh, well, what's perceived as Rome? Actually, it's according to Argento, it's meant to be kind of in every city. It's a model of like every city. Um, and it has like American uh, newscasters. So it's just a generic every city. And it's meant to be like kind of showcase a generic American city or generic international sort of every city. Uh, so he goes to this place um, and all of a sudden these murders start happening that mirror his book. Um, and some of the beginning, let's just say, uh, narration in the in the movie kind of uh, give you some insight into like uh, I would say a mind of a killer that is very common. But yes, they they foreshadow all these things, and uh, like I said, it's assumed initially the killer. And this is kind of also a giallo and an Argento trope is that uh, initially there's one killer, and then the killer turns into uh, sort of the dual consciousness of the other killer in this case peter north and peter north assumes to be uh sort of in a jungian kind of archetypical type of way uh the role of the killer himself and to me this denotes not only kind of a play on the psychoanalyzation of uh serial killers but it also kind of you know, speaks to a potential of like uh, being accomplices and various different networks that could potentially exist and did potentially exist that might be uh, linked into the Gladio networks. Who knows? Oh, on the uh, topic too of the the breaking down of reality, because this is also another thing about Giallo films that they toy with something that a lot of more conventional American horror films really wouldn't dabble in until the 90s with things like Wes Craven's New Nightmare and In the Mouth of Madness. But um, one of my favorite Giallo films, Lucio Fucci's Cat in the Brain, uh, this was essentially Fucci's version of Fellini's Eight and a Half. Fellucci actually stars in the movie playing himself mm. and has a series of murders that break out in the set of the film that he's directing in the movie. Uh, and then it later turns out that it's his psychiatrist who's actually the killer. Interesting. Is that before? What year did that come out? Uh, that came out in 1990. Okay. That, so, but Tenebrae kind of precedes that. Yeah, Tenebrae preceded it. But I mean, Argento never quite went to the length of playing himself. In a yeah, that's true. That's the true. way Flucci did in that's that. True. He, he that's true. That's true. But I, I think he should still be given credit for kind of like being uh, one of the few Giallo. I didn't know about the full chi. Uh, movie but one of the few giallo directors that actually did toy with the idea of distorting reality 
and sort of where the author that's uh, a star that you don't suspect becomes the killer himself and then all the all the killings that's described in the book sort of start replicating themselves and um i i think he deserves some credit for that um, oh he totally and- does i mean yeah i think what flucci was doing was sort of an evolution of that but yeah you can see how some of these currents the guys like Argento and Flucci were toying with later came into uh, more conventional American horror films with Wes Craven. Now, I'm not giving, I'm not saying like he's the only person who did that. I'm just simply saying he's one of the first that I know in terms of Giallo. Well, I think it's, I mean, a lot of it, I think actually probably goes back to Fellini because I mean, again, I think Fellini, you know, there might've been other movies before eight and a half where, uh, the director had kind of been in it, but I don't know to the extent that were offended. You know, again, I mean, obviously, Fellini didn't directly star in that, but the main character is clearly based on him and then be, is being played by the, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the actor's name, but he was basically Fellini's on screen alter ego. Uh, but yes, ever since Fellini did that, uh, he would continuously toy with the idea of breaking down. Uh, the wall between reality and fiction. It was like another thing he kind of played with with the movie that he did on Clowns. I think it's just called I Clown or something like and that. And as you know, it's not unusual for serial killers themselves to be involved with uh, these types of things either. Uh, breaking down a reality or even being in, um, you know, writing about it or uh, trying to put themselves in the middle of like a, you know, production or whatever. It it has happened and has occurred. Oh, certainly. Uh, well, yeah, you know, and then also you have the whole network of people like Sandra London and, um, oh gosh, the chick that Ted Bundy had dated, I think, who also wrote. And Rule, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of weird parallels with all of this. But anyway, I don't want to get too sidetracked. Yeah, yeah, let's not get bogged down. But, um, okay, so what are some of the key characteristics of Argento's movies? Are there any others that you haven't highlighted yet? I mean, I've highlighted most of them, but let's let's go let's go talk about kind of like what are the benchmarks? Usually... In his films, there is, believe it or not, a clairvoyant. A clairvoyant sort of foreshadows uh, a murder or is involved, like kind of in a, in the plot to solve the murder. There's also like the misdirect, and throughout the films, Argento kind of toys with the concept of misdirect. I think in many ways, uh, people accuse David Lynch of trolling his audience, but Argento kind of trolls his audience by leading. Uh, different clues and leading people off the path of who'd be the potential killers. The other unique thing I think Dario Argento did that other Giallo uh, filmmakers into is he psychoanalyzes the, <clears throat> not only the, the killer himself, uh, which often turn out to be sort of traumatized people or people who have experienced trauma and they've sublimated the, the trauma onto like sort of their, their killer. But he also does this and cast uh, the victims themselves. And sometimes the victims themselves end up being the killer or they end up being blackmailed. Although I will say, like, I forgot to mention this earlier in the film. We were talking about Giallo. But blackmail plays a big prominent role in, like, a lot of Giallo films where uh, the killer, someone will will have accidentally killed somebody <clears throat> in, in the case of, I think, Four Flies in velvet uh and for for argento uh but it then it turns out someone witnessed them and they're they're stalking them and they're saying i'm going to uh drop dirt on them and then it's later revealed that the person doing that may have been someone very close to them so the 
pathos that's seen in Argento films, I think, is kind of specific to him. Um, he even says it in an interview that it's like specific to he's the first one to kind of psychoanalyze the whole uh, sort of uh, protagonist, antagonist in uh, Giallo films. Uh, also, the use of animals uh, such as birds, lizards, even insects. Um, he even makes the, there's a statement in there where the uh, main character, the jazz artist in Deep Red, he talks about how that his music is understand by vertebrates and non-vertebrates. Uh, so there's that aspect where Argento makes uh, animals a main part, a mainstay of his films. Um, so I think that's kind of unique uh, in terms of like his giallo. Also his camera angles that he utilizes. He likes to do a lot of high camera angles, but camera angles to where you don't quite see the killer. Uh, he has this knack also to where he furthers what Bava did. Uh, by providing a point of view that's not only from the killer, but from the victim. Primarily, uh, he does this in a manner to where you, um, and I, I hate to say this, but I think sometimes um, Argento even makes people sympathize with the killer more so than I would say the victims. I think that's probably a lot of people have criticized him about that. Uh, and let me address one more thing. And this is kind of a side note. Uh, when it comes to Argento, Argento's been accused of like sexism and uh, being a misogynist uh, in his films because he likes to uh, subject women to some of the most brutal things ever on cinema, including his own daughter. Uh, I, for one, don't believe this about Argento because Argento uh, showcased, I would think, probably one of the most premier uh, feminist horror film that is Suspiria. And did so tastefully. And in many instances, he shows a lot of his uh, female, uh, his female, even even like a lot of the killers, non-one-dimensionally. Uh, so they're not just final girls. They're not just uh, subjected to like the male gaze. They, they're actually fully developed. And, you know, Argento himself said in an interview, he said that, uh, you know, I like to see. I don't like to see ugly men or women killed in a lot of his films. You know, he says that he says that in his films. I, you know, uh, the thing is, is that I, I don't believe Argento is guilty of a lot of the different uh, criticisms that people levy at him. Uh, I just think it's a horror film. It's a unique genre that shows sort of the darker nature of brutality of, of people. And, you know, if you want like, uh, you know, certain people to be represented fully in the genre, it's, they're going to be the villains. They're going to sometimes be the victims. And sometimes they're going to even, you know, uh, be the killers. You know, that's that's just the way uh, things go. But I think Dario Argento, I'll just say on that, I think is uniquely Italian in that aspect. I will say he's uniquely Italian. And uh, he, matter of fact, he levies a lot of, uh, his critics in Tenebrae, he sort of like satirizes them and also invokes a lot of dark humor in, in a lot of his giallo, including directed at a lot of his critics. Uh, but that's as far as what I know about, about uh, Dario Argento is definitely I could I could talk forever about it. Yeah, I think the 
<clears throat> charges of misogyny have been overrated in terms of Argento. I mean, obviously the guy was, um, you know, what born in the thirties or forties or something like that. A lot of his primary movies came out in the seventies and eighties. So yeah, I, I'm not going to say that there's not some stereotypes, things that would now be seen as sexist in them. But I mean, if you've seen a lot of the other shallow films from that era, it's, Definitely, I would say night and day in many cases in terms of how uh, the women are depicted. Well, let me let me ask you though, what what other film can you name in in horror or giallo, et cetera, that's more feminist than Suspiria? I yeah. mean, what I mean, and I mean too, you could basically say the same thing about most American slasher movies, where again, a lot of the victims are women. I mean, yes, there's maybe more diversity with the victims, but that's still. A common trope of American slashers as it typically comes down to sort of a female heroine. And then again, arguably, many of the heroines in these slashers are much more one dimensional than the characters in mm-hmm. um, Argento's films, for instance. But yeah, I definitely agree, not just with Suspiria, but some of the other films that are much more well developed. And I would I would even go so far as to say Stendhal syndrome. Yeah, um, I was just even, thinking Stendhal syndrome. Yeah. Stendhal. Uh, even, even that sort of um a protagonist um i think her name is anna you know she she goes from being a victim to a killer you know and she also assumes kind of a masculine role in that film and uh, this shapes her whole perception yes she turns into a killer uh because she's been victimized and and raped but she she has enough i guess wherewithal and power to pick herself up and uh you could say maybe she's like a little bit you know, uh, jarred by the experience where it, it causes kind of a, uh, you know, a psychological, a really deep psychological wounding. Uh, but it's not the shrieking sort of uh, a violet that you see in a lot of like, in my, in my opinion, a lot of American films. So I don't yeah. know. I mean, I don't think Argento is a sex. I just wanted to interject that because he gets often criticized for that. Yeah, no, I actually tend to view Stendhal Syndrome as much of a character study as a mm-hmm. horror film. And yeah, I mean, I do think that it's a very uh, interesting take on how a rape victim would respond to those circumstances, no doubt. So yeah, I would have to agree. I think that uh, many of the charges against him have been somewhat exaggerated in that regard. Um, but uh, do you have anything else to add on what distinguishes Argento from other Jalo directors? Um, primarily I think that's, I've covered all the bases, um, basically his use of animals as like a plot device and as detectives, his, um, let's just say, uh, his use of clairvoyance and psychics, uh, also the, the fact also his, his, the use of architecture, uh, and colors, you know, in terms of like Suspiria, the primary colors are used to, uh, illustrate some of the, uh, the word, the word whole house, um, or the whale house uh it's used to distinguish those are some of the distinguishing factors of argento's uh filmmaking uh there are others i'm sure and also like he was very early to embrace uh technology as opposed to other giallo uh filmmakers and i said largely i think this is because uh dario argento was largely able to produce himself because he had already he had money not only from the inheritance from his father but also from his position of being a critic uh, at, at like the, the Rome newspaper. So he was able to also be a lot more 
explorative than other directors. He was able to explore other themes that other Giallo directors kind of relegated to the market. Um, so, and also like I like I mentioned, his camera angles are kind of unconventional too. Like he'll take camera angles and shoot it from the perspective like he does an opera from the eyes of a raven. Uh, or he'll shoot it from like the perspective in phenomena from a sort of insects. Uh, he like, and like I said, um, all this was like sort of polished from Bava, but he sort of came into his own. Uh, I would say definitively around Deep Red, and he's developed sort of these trademarks themselves. And also, let me also mention too, is that when we mention there's the set devices, um. Some of the creepier aspects of Deep Red come from uh, the, the use of the doll. Uh, this is like something uniquely Argento saying he intertwined sort of surrealistic concepts that you would never expect. And he makes them a plot device, everything from, uh, you know, uh, let's just say larvae to insects uh, solving cases and phenomena to, uh, you know, lullabies being sort of a, a indicator of like the killer and uh, deep red. Um, the, these are aspects I think that are uniquely Argento. All right. I think that is a good place to wrap things up for, for now. Uh, we'll be back here in about two weeks with the second part of this installment. Uh, Doc Inferno and I are going to delve much deeper into Argento's films. Now that we've laid the foundation for the Jalo Jern as a whole. So anyway, hope you guys will rejoin us for the next outing. We've got a lot of additional stuff in there to cover. It's really compelling. I think it's going to uh, shed some light on one of the most intriguing horror subgerns to emerge in the past 50 years or so. And with that, I will say to you guys, as always, thank you so much for your support and listening, and good night and good luck to you all.
Santum went diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall The Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught a realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ Talking about that BMC We got no economy if we ain't got Excuse me, please Said I'm just eating my burrito Not the droids you're looking for See you all on payday See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on that fast pay I sing my hooly blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies Great white father, don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just the one thing that ain't too clear. I said people always bitching about the government here. But that war administration's our whole civilization. What?